0: Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Michael Heseltine. This was recorded live at the Duchess Theatre. Thank you to everyone who came, because all of us that were there on this night witnessed and felt something very, very special. I've had Michael on the show before, and he's superb. Very few people that you meet in life, that you're in the same room as, can captivate an audience in the way that Michael Heseltine can. And there is, and that's for a number of reasons. <laughs> Mainly, of course, because of his political nous and the natural gravitas that he has. He's about seven foot tall, still sharp as attack, still really funny, still with such a phenomenal political brain. But some politicians just have that authority, and he has it. He also has a wicked sense of humour as well, and we have a wonderful laugh together. And Before we come on to uh, Michael, don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget you can get tickets for all future shows at mattford.com and tickets to my new tour, Clowns to the Left of Me Jokers to the Right, which starts in Exeter on the 17th of this month and goes to Glasgow, Edinburgh, Norwich, Nottingham, uh, various London dates, including at the South Bank Centre on the 19th of February, Oh, where else? Oh, Leeds, Newcastle, Hexham, Annick, just all over the place. Come and see me, mattford.com. And, of course, my next two guests at the political party on Monday, the 21st of February, the amazing Edwina Curry. That will be an absolute riot. And two weeks after that, on the 7th of March, Neil Kinnock. The heavyweights that come onto this show live. It's incredible. Anyway, emails, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com for your unusual encounters with politicians. This comes from an anonymous emailer. He says, several years ago, I was working a shift in the police with a current conservative MP who was a special constable in the British Transport Police. One day we were on patrol in central London and stuck in traffic on Charing Cross Road on the approach to Tottenham Court Road at the junction with Oxford Street. I love how you still recall this and (laughs) it still gives me the details of a serving officer would. So we're sat in traffic for several minutes and it was clear there was something going on ahead. At the junction, there are about 30 protesters blocking the road, and they were protesting against government cuts. Several of the protesters were wheelchair users, and they had banners, posters, and were shouting rather nasty things about the Tories who were in government. Stood close in proximity to me, and what was to me, in my sense of humour, a rather funny coincidence... (laughs) was a Conservative Member of Parliament who was a British Transport Police special. As the shouts of F the Tories and Tories come, and words to that effect were filling the air, I just about managed to resist the urge to shout back, ladies and gentlemen, please meet Conservative Member of Parliament. And he doesn't name it. Well, he, he, he tells me who he is, but I'm not going to repeat it because he's asked me not to. He says, and the chaos that would have absolutely ensued, but needless to say, I went about my duties in a professional manner, as did the, as did the MP, and I didn't drop that particular grenade shortly after we got support from the met police and other colleagues and after about 30 minutes the protesters moved off the road we returned to our business the protesters never knew that their anti-tory anti-government protest, stood 10 meters away from them was a conservative mp well see next time you're protesting if you are peacefully of course just bear in mind who might be listening uh, right on to today's show with michael heseltine i mean there aren't you can't really do justice to this. You can only really consume it, and uh, in all, really, at the at the at the talent and the and the ability, and just the personality and character of Michael Heseltine, and uh, he is a, a real star of, of politics and, and a serious political individual, but also a, just a great personality. This was a very special night. I mean, you could. Every, every night has its own atmosphere, obviously. And some nights like the one with Angela Rayner are, are raucous and they're brilliant and they're fun uh, and they're always fun. But in their, in their own way, this was like, you know, living history, really. And the stuff in here about Margaret Thatcher, the stuff about Boris Johnson and John Major. He tells some phenomenal stories in here. This is full of gems from start to finish. It begins, of course, as always, uh, with uh, with me um, making the most of my privilege to perform stand-up comedy every fortnight in the West End. And then after an interval, uh, the wonderful Michael Heseltine. Enjoy. Yeah, the Honourable Member of the Yes, and we are going we to level up the country, we're going to get out. It was like a sort of horse racing commentary. We're going to level up the country, we're going to get out the vaccine. Yes, we are. So, the Jews are and we can do this. Yes, we are. The Honourable Gentleman, and the Honourable General of the Well, he was against it, leaving the Opposition. And, uh, and we are. We are. Jimmy Sand, yes, I was Jimmy Sand. And Pepe Pigwill, Pepe Pigwill. And uh, no, it's very important that people do get their booster jab. Well, I don't understand. What's the seriousness of that? I mean, you know what's incredible is, I think there are three groups of people at the moment in the country. The first group uh, think he's lying, and they're really angry about it. The second group think he's lying, and they don't really care. The third group, incredibly, believe him. <laughs> and where are these people who watch this guy clearly lying through his teeth and go, I think he's telling the truth. No, that looks like a man telling the truth to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing suspicious about the way he's delivering this information. I mean, the most. I mean, they reckon it's around 12% of the country. You walk through the street today, if you pass 100 people, 12 of them. You go, yeah, 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 I don't know what the fuss is about. It's clearly telling the truth. That must be the most gullible people. What else are these people falling for? Coming back from a DFS on a Monday going, you're not going to believe this. Sale didn't end at all, it was just bullshit. (laughs) It's a terrible character trait to be that naive. You couldn't do anything. Imagine being a Premier League referee with that sort of judgment. No, hold on a second, hold on, no, 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 no. He's really rolling around. I think he might be genuinely hurt. (laughs) Why would he be holding his ankle if they didn't kick him there? It doesn't make, well look, his teammates are really annoyed about it. I mean, uh, uh, maybe we've got this one wrong. And obviously Boris Johnson has plenty of people who would go out there and defend him. Chief among them, Nadine Dorries. (laughs) Oh my God! I don't even see that picture of the way she looks at him in Parliament. I mean, it's unusual. I mean, you really shouldn't look at anyone like that unless they're Tony Blair. You know, it's unhealthy. Unusual to uh, sexually covet a Prime Minister unless it's Tony. It's just so weird. That interview with Charlie State. Now, if you haven't seen this, you have to watch it. I saw it go viral. I was like, it can't be as good as people are making out. It's better. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, Charlie, is on BBC Breakfast. He goes, uh, uh, we're joined now by the coach, Secretary Nadine Dorries. Uh, Miss Dorries, have you spoken to the Prime Minister in the last 24 hours? And she goes, why? <laughs> and he goes, because I want to know. <laughs> so it becomes this weird sort of standoff. And he goes, I just want to know if you've spoken to the Prime Minister in the last 24 hours. She goes. We've communicated. <laughs> like, this you're making this sound way more suspicious. It's like, has he sent you a dick pic? Is that? <laughs> I wouldn't chat. Wouldn't really sum it up, Charlie. You know, it's uh, something completely different. I mean, watching them. What's odd is obviously you expect Boris Johnson to go out and lie to save his own skin. That's what he's always done. Watching other people go out and bat for him is just so surreal. I mean, it's almost like Jacob Rees-Mogg's the best at this. It's like, it's like the Tory is playing a sort of parlor, a sort of like Cards Against Humanity game, where they have to like pick up a card with a scenario on it, go on the telly and just make out it's real and defend it. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg is turning the card over during the interview. He's got veins of ice, that fella, it's incredible. No, 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 well that culture's always existed in number 10, yes it has, no. No, well actually the rodeo machine was installed by Robert Walpole, No it was, and, no. And, uh, no Nick, it's a known fact that the strippers were invited by James Callaghan and they never left. <laughs> he obviously likes to quote Churchill a lot, uh, uh, Boris, but he, this week quoted The Lion King. Uh, After five uh, advisers resigned, apparently, he huddled together what was left of the Downing Street staff. Must have been like the final hours of the Costa Concordia. (laughs) where's everyone going? Right, okay. And apparently, he said uh, to quote Rafiki from The Lion King, change is good. Um, I mean, I'm not surprised that his favourite Disney film is about a blonde little tosser who thinks leadership is his birthright. But his references are all like Kermit the Frog, Peppa Pig, The Lion King, like his world of. Re- he's got the world of reference of a seven-year-old. Yes, and we are, we are, we're, we're gonna, we are. I tell you what, we're going to win the next section with free rusts. Yes, milk and biscuits. And, and I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. The leader of the opposition, the honourable member opposite, is against it. I'll tell you why he's against it. Because he, Mr Speaker, is a poo-poo head. Nadine Dory's straight on the airwaves. Well, I believe he is. I think the Prime Minister's right. I think he is a poo-poo head. And no, Krishnan, that's what I believe. I believe that he is. Look, the Prime Minister has ruined and debased the office of the Prime Minister itself in calling me a poo-poo head, and he won't take it back. Very important. Look, he could He was given ample opportunity to take it back. He could've just called me a dick breath, but he won't do it. <laughs> Because he's not a leader. Alright, steady on, though, steady on. Right, enough of this, right? Uh, yeah, definitely the opposite. I don't need any more. No, on, on. Don't tell me I'll do my job. Right. Prime Minister. Prime Minister, you heard the problem. There. You just formal words, maybe retract what you said. Please find form a formal words. Prime Minister, please. Right, I'm a I, a I, difference, I will take back that. But I will say this, I will say this. He, he, he does have a willy on his bum-bum. <laughs> and Blackford will be there trying to get thrown out. Fucking. Blackford is like, I mean, just, a, it's like he's just a huge spherical ball of tweed. It's just such a weird diet, the people of Scotland, the people of Scotland, Mr. Speaker, the people everywhere we go, the people of Scotland, Seven quid for a latte, the people of Scotland have never been so offended. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what a phenomenal guest we have tonight. He's been on the podcast before. I'm delighted he's come back. There are very few people in British history that will ever achieve the status that tonight's guest has ever achieved. One of the most dominant and talented politicians this country has ever produced. Please raise the roof for the one and only Michael Hasseltine.
1: Good evening. Good evening to you. Now, I've got see, you... Um, got... I think the wine isn't open, you noticed that?
0: Yeah, and I just... I realised it wasn't, I... But... <laughs> <Well,
1: that's it. laughs> I've mean, okay, come a hell of a long way for an empty glass, so, <laughs> so, um... I got you a Chablis, is that right? That's right. Pre- okay. Premier Cru, I hope.
0: Yeah, something like that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a- Aldi Premier Cru. Well done. <laughs> uh, I'll come again. (laughs) I'll just, um... I don't want to... Do you know what? I didn't open it beforehand because I wanted it to chill perfectly, so... I knew that. (laughs) Do I? I'm always slightly worried of corking it. Um...
1: I think... I think you have to push down a bit. (laughs) That's right. That's (laughs) it.
0: Oh, I shouldn't... Uh, uh, OK, I think... Uh, uh, no, you, now push the levers down. OK, yeah. <laughs> The ones I buy tend to just have a screw... T- <laughs> oh, I think I might have done that a bit too early. <laughs> there was a bit of cork, but I think... Um, I think that's to do, cos it's such an old bottle... Have you got got an assistant or something? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of guests ask me that. Okay, well, hopefully that's not corked. Do you want to try it for... I mean, there's really no other... You try it.
1: Shall I? (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Very good.
0: Oh, excellent, good. Yeah. And how, how much should I give you? Um... Four glass. OK. <laughs> I mean, the whole bottle's yours, so... Um, oh, well. If you start running low, I'll just top you up as the... No, because. Okay. <laughs> um, well, talking of a, a toxic drinking culture...
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 the, the, an idea seems to have been peddled by the current Prime Minister and perhaps his allies that, oh, there's always been a drinking culture at number ten. When you used to be in there for cabinet meetings with Mrs. Thatcher or Mr. Major, was there a toxic drinking culture at the time? Uh, Not that I remember. (laughs) Of course,
1: it is a long time ago, and old men forget. But um, I don't remember drinking. But but in fairness, I have to say that I was a visitor, uh, so I wasn't on a day-to-day working relationship there. I would go back to my department. Um, Even as Deputy Prime Minister, I was in the Cabinet Office, which, of course,
0: as you know, is linked through to Number 10. But would... Do you think Mrs Thatcher, or Mr Major, or any other Prime Minister prior to Boris Johnson, do you think they'd have behaved in the way that he has during a a national lockdown? Well, every Prime Minister behaves in a different way, don't they? (laughs) 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 Uh, And what do you think of the way that this one's behaved? Different. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I never thought you and Nadine Dorries would have so much in common. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's not nice.
0: <laughs> so what is, what is your... Except we love Liverpool. Yes. Both of us. Yes, you were very fond of Liverpool. Yeah. And of, uh, I remember you putting it the joie de vivre of, uh, of, of the people who live there. That's
1: a bit foreign.
0: <laughs> the love of life.
1: Yes, it's, this is post-Brexit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How do you feel then about, about... I mean, I know that you're against Brexit. Um, and you lost the whip in the House of Lords. You lost the Conservative whip for... I did, yes. Your comments about whether people should vote Conservative or not. Do you think... Has Boris convinced you to vote Conservative again? No, let's not
1: get on to that for a minute. Let's talk about (laughs) why I lost the whip in the House of Lords. Uh, I voted in the House of Lords to make sure that whatever Brexit deal there was came back to Parliament to be uh, approved, finally, by Parliament. And uh, that sounded to me a perfectly reasonable constitutional relationship. And I voted about sort of 6 o'clock to do that. And I took my wife out to dinner at Wilson's. And um, at 8 o'clock, the head waiter came and said, there's a phone call from number 10. I'm sorry, from the House of Lords, Chief Whip. They want you to go back. Well, my loyal and obedient servant, if the Chief Whip wants to see me, I go back. And he said, we've got to take the whip away from you. which, uh, all right, lots of Tories had the whip taken from them. And um, three weeks later, what I had voted for became government policy. (laughs) But they didn't offer me the whip back. (laughs) (laughs) And and then Mrs May has since then proved to be an arch-type example of how you rebel against your party is isn't a day when she isn't in there doing something to stab Mr Johnson in the back or to vote (laughs) against this or that. So perhaps
0: she learned from me. (laughs) (laughs) In a situation like that, I mean, you are the dictionary definition of a grandee and the whip is removed. Were you outraged at first or were you philosophical about it?
1: No, I anticipated it. I thought there was a high chance that they would. Uh, it's only really rather complimentary that they thought it was worth bothering. <laughs> but I think, you know, if I may be uncharacteristically modest, <laughs> I think to try and write the history of the Tory party in the last 50 years and exclude me is quite difficult. <laughs> I think everyone would agree. I mean, not everybody. <laughs> Who might disagree? Uh, uh,
0: you know, I don't know that. <laughs> We'd have to think about that. Yeah. So, thinking of the last 50 years, as you put it, how much of a departure from the politics of, say, someone like Ted Heath does Boris Johnson represent? Oh, don't limit it to Ted. Every single one of them. OK, let's pick <laughs> Churchill.
1: That's the one that Boris Johnson... represents. take the lot. I mean, the, the great thing about the Tory party in my lifetime is that it told the British people the truth about post-war Britain and I, I, I was there I lived through the war I remember listening to Neville Chamberlain announce the declaration of war it was on a wall mounted radio in the kitchen in number one Upland's Crescent Swansea um, and I, I lived through the war as a child um, but I remember standing in the garden of our home, watching the searchlights, looking for German aircraft. They came at nine o'clock every night. And the little dog that we had, he knew they would come because he was always at the top of the stairs to the basement where we went to the shelter. But anyway, we lived through the... I mean, as a child, I was brought up during the horror of the Second World War. and the, The the one abiding memory is that the men and women of the prisoner of war camps and the resistance movements were determined it would never happen again. That was the European movement. It must never happen again. A thousand years in which the failures of politicians have sent young people to die for causes which now are obscure. And the Tories told the truth, Winston Churchill, we must create a kind of United States of Europe. Macmillan, winds of change about the nature of empire, about the conversion to Commonwealth, Ted Heath, the the application to join, Margaret, the single market, John Major, Maastricht. They were all of a continuum. And they were right, Britain is no longer a world power and never can be again. In the context of China, India, the United States, we are and always have been a European power. And that's where our essence lies. And Boris, one or two others, ruptured it. And with that, they ruptured Britain's position in the world. And that is a political judgment about power and the realities of politics. The way it's worked out has turned us into a laughing stock.
0: Do you feel that... Um... <laughs> See, parties go through this sometimes. They end up with the leaders that actually would, would horrify some of their predecessors and they seem completely out of step with the mainstream of those parties. It happened to both parties in the last five or ten years. In your assessment then, in a way, is Boris Johnson not a Tory? I think Boris is Boris. (laughs) I I don't think there
1: are any policies. I think there are are moments, there are lurches. (laughs) There are different directions depending on the context. He is, every day is a photo opportunity. And that's not strategic political judgement. That is Boris Johnson. I mean, you must have met him a few times.
0: Does he ever ask you for advice? No, uh, look,
1: I like Boris, I have to tell you. And I'm torn uh, every time I'm asked the question between the personal relationships that I have with him because he took over from me as Member of Parliament for Henley and he was an extremely courteous successor. Uh, We got on very well. I saw a certain amount of him when he was mayor of London and I was working for David Cameron. Um, And uh, if we met now, my own view is we would have a perfectly amiable conversation. But I hate what he's done to my country and my party. And most people find that turns into a personal antipathy, but it hasn't with me. I am sad, but I have a very clear view about what i think is right and wrong in politics and on the political basis Boris and i are a world apart
0: and d- does he ever does he ever seek your counsel
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> actually in, in truth I, I have never tried to trespass on his premiership but i did try the other day because i was in liverpool and they, they the, the the area I know so well, has, had been declared a World Heritage site and it was about to be withdrawn because of a, um, a development, Everton Football Club. Yes. Major economic development, but it was upsetting the World Heritage status. And I went to see it. And I thought I saw what could be done to avoid. And so I said to one or two of the leading figures in Liverpool, look, I, I think I could talk to the Prime Minister. So I went back the next morning, and I picked up the phone. I said, look, I, I want ten minutes on the phone with the Prime Minister. What do you want to talk about? So I said, this is what I want to talk about. And then nothing much happened. Eventually I got a phone call back some considerable time later saying, look, this is what the Department of something of other things. I said, look, I didn't ask what the department thinks. I want to talk to the Prime Minister. Anyway, I never did. And to this day, I don't know. Was it that Boris said no? Well, any reasonable interpretation of today's events tells me he never got to hear that I wanted to talk to him. My own view is he would have talked to me. But I think that there was such a web of gossamer between him and the real world of politics that I suspect I just got fobbed off by one of these people, probably who have been fobbed off themselves now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well people in number ten do listen to this podcast, so if should the Prime Minister hear about that and choose to reach out, would you still talk to him? Of course. He's the Prime Minister for the moment <laughs> <laughs> So, obviously, you, you, I, mean that's, I think that's how a lot of people, obviously, in politics and in life feel, is that there are friends of theirs who, um, you know, they still like them, they're still fond of them, they could sit down and have a glass of wine, and they might not necessarily agree with their politics or, or what they've done in their office. Um, but thinking about who might succeed Boris Johnson at some point, um, Rishi Sunak has been described as a Michael Heseltine-style figure. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> is that a surprise? Yes, I think it is. I mean, look,
1: I don't think he is a Michael Heseltine-type figure. That's not a criticism. He's a very balanced very sensible and very articulate and very clever person. But I don't see the personal comparisons with him. Nor, that's not a criticism
0: in any way. I guess uh, the, the parallel might be popular in the country, seen as a formidable uh, foe, uh, probably best chance of winning the next election... Maybe in that regard, he seems to hazard time.
1: Well, there are a lot of big assumptions in that. Um, I think that if if I was Ritchie, I would be worried about a thing called timing because he is popular. I know exactly what you're saying about the polls. But he's presided over a moment when he had a lot of ability to help solve the problems but the cash has run out, and the problems are getting worse. And so I think that he will find the next year, on any predictions, extremely uncomfortable. Um, Tax increases, inflation increases, falling living standards, and uh, he's chancellor. And uh, it's nothing to do with him personally, but in those circumstances, uh, he's he's going to find it difficult to hold
0: his poll rating. And how do you reflect on the timing of your (coughs) chance and and taking it? I mean, do you think, when you reflect on standing for the Conservative Party (coughs) leadership, do you think you should have gone earlier? Or would it suit you to have waited?
1: Well, it never occurred to me to go earlier, and it never occurred to me that I would go at all um, in the circumstances of a challenge. I thought Margaret would survive until she lost the 1992 election, which, she, of course, she never thought. but I thought she was... Once the poll tax was in place, I think her day was done. Um, and then, I, I, of course, I thought I would be a candidate. That's absolutely right. I, I was staggered when my friend Geoffrey Howe resigned. I, I, I was speaking in either Portsmouth or Southampton and I came out of the meeting, I think about six o'clock, to be confronted by the journalist, what do you think about Sir Geoffrey's resignation? I said, what? And of course, Jeffrey then made that speech, it is now for others to decide. And I was sitting just behind him. And although Jeffrey uh, is very old and very good friend of mine, um, I had no idea of what he was intending to do. But the moment he said, it is now for others to decide, the media focused on me. And indeed, it was obvious to me from that moment that that would happen because as I walked just down three bench rows in the Commons, turned right, another old friend, Michael Jopling, former chief whip, I said to him, for God's sake, Michael, what do I do now? And he said, Michael, you do nothing. You'll be leader of the opposition in two years. To which I've applied, I don't want to be leader
0: of the opposition. <laughs> because it's... We I mean, have a lot of talk this week, obviously, about resignations. There's probably no resignation more dramatic than yours to walk out of a cabinet meeting. I think it was unprecedented at the time. No.
1: Leo Amey, turn of the century. OK. <laughs> A bit before your time.
0: A little bit, but, yeah. In, in my defence, it was a bit before my time. Certainly hasn't happened since, no. someone just walking out of Cabinet and resigning. No. So it was over the Westland affair. At the start of that Cabinet meeting, or you know, any point before, did you think, if this meeting doesn't go the way I want it to go, I'm prepared to walk, or did that feeling sort of rise during that conversation?
1: No. I thought we would find a way through. and. The whole issue, I mean, it's, it's you've got to be interested in the detail to understand why I resigned. It was not about a helicopter company in the west of England, although that was the backdrop. The backdrop was my position as the Secretary of State for Defence, a very important, prestigious position in the Tory party, who had been invited by Leon Britton, the responsible minister, to put together an alternative proposal to the American offer for Westland. And uh, I had done so, using all the authority of my position, um, to persuade my fellow European defence ministers to help in putting together this concert with two major British companies, GEC and um, British Aerospace. And Margaret didn't want anything to do with um, any alternative to the Americans. She had a meeting with, the first, with a small group of ministers where she was overruled by the majority. She said, we will have a meeting of the cabinet committee, economic committee, and she'd fix that. She was overruled by a majority of colleagues. And the next stage was to go to cabinet, which she had said there would be another meeting. It was fixed by the Cabinet Office. It was cancelled before we got to the meeting. So I raised it in the Cabinet, and I was not allowed to put the case. Uh, And indeed, Margaret fetched into her handbag and produced a piece of paper on which she had written the conclusions of the Cabinet meeting. Uh, and this, uh, to anyone who's interested in the detail and has been there, is unthinkable. The civil service, which is brilliant at anticipating any outcome, will have put the options in front of the Prime Minister. And uh, they will be there in her formal brief. Prime Minister, you could have A, B, C, D, ever. They'll all be there. To produce this piece of paper was obviously, to me, sitting opposite, what's something coming here. And basically, what she said was that there will be no further discussion on this matter and uh, any questions that are put to colleagues, the answer will first be cleared by the Cabinet Secretary, to which I said, Prime Minister, are you saying to me that if I am asked the same question I was asked a week ago, which I then answered, that if I'm asked that question tomorrow, I have to reply, I must go to the cabinet secretary. To which her reply was, yes. I was defence secretary, you know? I would have been laughed to scorn, because you're a journalist, you understand. The number 10 briefing by Bernard Ingham would have said, he's bust. We called his bluff. He's a man of straw. My European defence colleagues, who had, I hope, some regard for me, would have thought... What sort of guy was this, you know? Just told to shut up by the Prime Minister. And so I said, uh, there's no place for honour with me in this cabinet. And I left. I had not anticipated that piece of paper with this extraordinary ability to humiliate me in the context.
0: When you think of, I mean, that cabinet, there's you, there's, there's so many big figures in British politics around the table at that point. When you say you're going to walk out, does anyone try and stop you? Uh, no,
1: um, <laughs> I, I think I, from whatever there's been plenty of accounts of it. There was a, a profound shock, and I think there was a, a pause. Um, and uh, but of course, without any doubt, Margaret had anticipated it because she appointed George Younger, Young, George Young, uh, and um, he he was announced very rapidly. But the interesting thing was another constitutional aberration which followed on. I went back to my department. Now what should have happened is the cabinet secretary should have rung the permanent secretary of the Ministry of Defence. He has resigned, closed his desk. What actually happened is that George rang me. George is a very decent guy. He said, Michael, what time would it be convenient for me to come? (laughs) So I said six o'clock. And from 12 o'clock when I had resigned as a secretary of state until 4.30, the whole resources of the Ministry of Defence provided me, with every help they could, (laughs) to write a very long resignation statement, which I then delivered to the serried ranks of the British press in the Ministry of Defence offices.
0: Unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) Did you... I mean, things happen, obviously, in the heat of the moment, did you ever regret it? Regret it hugely. Doubt that
1: I had to do it, never.
0: And, you know, someone who's as uh, interested in political strategy as yourself, do you think your prospects of becoming Prime Minister were damaged by the resignation or enhanced?
1: Yes, I think so. I think that, <laughs> well, it was an interesting, we go back over a certain ground. I think that we, the, the, when could it, what could have happened that would have made it possible for me to be a prime minister? Margaret went on, 1986 to 1990. She introduced the poll tax, which was an absolute disaster for the Tory party. Um, until then, she would have been impregnable. It was the poll tax had finished her, so by the time that the poll tax led to Jeffrey's resignation and well uh, and other things, there was no way back for the Tories uh, that that I, I can see except in the context of Jeffrey's resignation. So. I tried at the right time from that point of view. Um, I didn't choose the time, but the alternative would have been to go on. Well, actually, there is an alternative, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's quite interesting, yeah. The alternative would have been to go on to 92, and then I'd have been leader of the opposition. Now, there, there is an alternative, which, frankly, it never occurred to me or to anyone else that uh, I'm aware of at the time. When I stood against her uh, in um, 1990 I got 157 votes. She got just a, a significant majority but not enough to win outright on the first round. And so uh, we went to the second round and that's when the cabinet told her she wasn't going to win. Interesting enough, it was the cabinet that Jeffrey had in mind when he said, it is now for others to determine. It wasn't me, it was the cabinet. And he got it right And they told him that she... Now, if... The, the point of this whole story is, if I had said, after the first ballot, when she had got more votes than I did, look, I'm not interested in technicalities. She has won... I will give her my loyal support in the forthcoming general election. There would have been a, that would have been a highly cynical move, but it might have been quite a clever one. <laughs> anyway, we never thought of it until years later. Someone said,
0: <laughs> Why didn't you do it? If you look the results of that 1990 leadership election? Because you and Douglas Heard as well as John Major. Yeah, Major does very well. It's quite interesting. Obviously he was the anointed Thatcher candidate. As much as he was a change candidate, he was the one that Margaret Thatcher had chosen as her successor. So obviously that gave him a certain amount of heft. But I do wonder about those Douglas Heard votes and how they'd have split. I mean, what proportion of Douglas Heard's votes would have gone to you and what proportion would have gone to John Major?
1: Well, it's very unlikely that... I have no idea, is the answer to your question, but it's very unlikely that enough that I would have got all of Douglas's votes. Um, I remember that leadership campaign very well, and the thing that really... The, the abiding memory was of the decency of it, that John and Douglas and I, we had a very good personal relationship, which continued on into the government that John form, formed. So much so that another, when John Major offered himself for re-election, if you remember, uh, he, I was the first person he told, as far as I know, and uh, I, I didn't stand against him. I had no quarrel with John. He treated me well, he we would uh, made me uh, a powerful figure in his government, uh, and I had no policy differences at all, which wasn't like that with Margaret. The, of the European issue, the poll tax, were absolutely black and white differences. I had nothing like that with John,
0: so I didn't stand against him. I mean, in retrospect, have you ever sort of entertained the idea that that might have been a mistake?
1: No. Uh, it might have been opportunist, it might have been self serving. It was
0: not a mistake. So thinking about you, this idea that uh, uh, had Margaret stayed on, you'd have been the leader of the opposition in 1992. So that would mean that Neil Kinnock would have become prime minister and you would have become leader of the opposition. Yes. So then, in that world, do you then become prime minister in 1997?
1: No, I don't think so. I think that... Um, um, well, again, I mean, you can't rewrite the events that would have followed the election of Neil Kinnock as prime minister. Um, but my own feeling is that the Tory party was shifting to the right. And um, it's perfectly true. It was massively hindered in its recovery by Tony Blair also shifting to the right. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> And, and becoming a sort of surrogate leader of the Labour Party. Um, so, but, but, but it's, quite, it's quite interesting that, that you're right. If, if Neil had actually come and done the sort of things Neil might have done, um, it might have opened up an opportunity. Um, but anyway, um, th- that was not relevant by the time I had to make the decisions.
0: It's really interesting, we think about those cabinet meetings and the purity of cabinet and, the, and the, effectively the format of it and what the rules should be, and governing by consent. Um, I mean, cabinet government went out of fashion, really, in Tony Blair's time, and it doesn't really feel like it's come back in fashion. Do you think that's a weakness?
1: Uh, I think you can exaggerate that. I think you can exaggerate the significance of cabinet's decision-making. Um, uh, it's, it's more complex... uh, I think I mentioned, and I think it's important, the usual procedure is you've got a conflict within government, is to have a small group of ministers. And that makes absolute sense. They're the guys who are playing it one way or another, who've got strong views, who know all the arguments powerfully. And so the prime minister would call them together, and there may be four or five of them. The chances are that a a formula will be found. uh, there is then a, a range of other ways in which, but it's very rare for something substantial to get to Cabinet. Um, uh, I, uh, and uh, I, Well, I, of course, I remember in the early days of Margaret's Cabinet, when she lost control, It's the only time I can remember a prime minister losing control of a cabinet. That was 1981 with the public expenditure uh, uh, review of the the sum of 81 when Margaret hadn't got a majority in the cabinet. So she (laughs) did what prime ministers do. She said, let's have a summer holiday. Came back, reshuffled, and
0: (laughs) a significant number of people didn't come back. (laughs) Uh, You obviously had a a fascinating rivalry with Margaret Thatcher. Um, Do you think she changed as a person, as a politician, from becoming leader of the Tory party to when she leaves office in 1990?
1: No, I don't think she changed at all. I think Margaret was always Margaret. And uh, um, uh, I think... I hope it isn't too harsh, but it is my own assessment. There were two Margarets. There was a Margaret here, and we all have gut feelings, and there was a Margaret here. And the first Margaret you came across was here. And, uh, you know, this was pretty hard right-wing stuff, what in the old days would be called lower-class attitudes, one step up the ladder, not much time for those at the bottom, the shirkers, the idlers, and all that sort of stuff. Um, And then there was this Margaret. Who, well, uh, I can best exemplify it. If, if you were a Secretary of State at Margaret's cabinet, she had views, you know, hard views. <laughs> uh, and and so when the, when you began to put your paper to cabinet, um, you got about three sentences out before she interrupted you. And and uh, I mean, I know this is all rather old-fashioned, but. It is the real world. I was brought up in a middle-class conventional family where deference to ladies was part of the culture. You know, you stood up in buses and all this sort of thing and you you listened to them rather than arguing with them, all that sort of thing that came as the sort of family background I came from. So to find oneself confronted by a lady who was arguing with you on your own subject when you were supposed to be putting a case to cabinet. Anyway, she would interrupt for within a minute through starting. So you had to wait till she drew breath and start again. <laughs> and then she'd interrupt again. And you had to st- wait until she drew breath and start again. And that was called survival, because the ones who didn't do it went, because in the end, she actually respected that. And she knew she couldn't push you around. Um, and, but just like you see, her European views came from here, bloody foreigners and worse. <laughs> uh, but when it came to the cold logic, Margaret created the single market. Why? Because she remembered the common agricultural policy which France and Germany sorted out before we joined the European Union. And surprise, surprise, they sorted it out in French and German interests, and we weren't there. When we joined, we had to accept it. So when Margaret saw the single market coming along, she said, well, I'm not having pushed around by these bloody foreigners again. She sent Arthur Cofield to Brussels to sort it for us. Brilliant. Exactly right. And um, so the, uh, the single market, when it was designed, huge economic benefit to the community, to European people and industry. Uh, it was very much a British contraption, contraption. Uh, and she gets good credit for that. But of course, <laughs> once you'd agree to harmonize the uh, internal regulations of 26, 27 different countries, you're going to get an awful lot of forms saying this has changed, that has changed, this is how we're going to do it. And small businesses went berserk, you know. And, I, and God, I was one of them. I know what it's like to be a small business. Every night, a new form. Brussels has said, Brussels wants, Brussels this. And Margaret, this Margaret, began to say, what are we going to do about this? And she, it, she veered off to the anti-Europeanism, which became more and more part of her approach. To the... Dismay of the majority of Conservatives and of her government at that time. But it was changing. And why was it changing? Who owned the British press? Rupert Murdoch hated Europe. Conrad Black hated Europe. David English, a brilliant editor of the Daily Mail, pro-European, changed to Paul Dacre, a Eurosceptic. And so the media went with her or she led it, whichever way you want to put it. And, uh, of course, in the early part of the current century, when the economic disasters, 2008, someone had to be blamed. And who do you blame? You blame them. Europeans, Brussels, civil servants, anybody except the realities of the changed world we're living in.
0: Uh, Obviously, we have a... We have a Prime Minister that has delivered himself to Downing Street on those uh, instincts, and might say, won a referendum on those sorts of messages. A lot of people really worried about people like Dominic Cummings being in Number 10. I don't know if you've ever met Dominic Cummings, what your view is of him and his style of operating. I haven't met him.
1: And so one is hesitant to make a judgement he never would have crossed the threshold of my my Downing Street. But more would a huge proportion of those inhabitants (laughs) in number (laughs) 10... You see, I, I think that, first of all, I have worked with civil servants as closely as anybody alive today. I have brought about change with the help of civil servants as profound as any politician of modern time. I'm sorry to be rather boastful, but it happens to be true. And I have the highest regard for civil servants. They're like a Rolls Royce, a brilliant piece of engineering. Of course, there's no driver and there's no fuel. That's what you call a minister. The ministers determine where to go and provide the energy and the enthusiasm and the leadership. Um, Now, what has happened is that more and more special advisers have come in. And they tend to come, (coughs) most of them have got party political views, usually of a more extreme nature than uh, uh, many members of the party. They tend to be tribal because they are loyal to someone who brought them in, and they don't have the standards of integrity that is characteristic of the British Civil Service. So before you know where you are, you have groups of not so much ministers leaking, but their acolytes leaking. And if you read today's or yesterday's, the current newspapers, I mean, I, I read them because, I, you know, I've got a come and talk to people like you, I've got to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and and there's, there's stuff that last 24 hours. A source said, a source said, another source said, God knows who these people are. They may be the most trivial piece of rubbish there ever was, <laughs> but, but they are actually quoted as authorities. And of course, you know, journalists have got to live by the sword. They need these sources, so they reward the sources. so the source doesn't become some insignificant twid on the fringe of the Tory party. A leading Tory source said, <laughs> and, and so they get their pay off, the journalists have got an access to the next guy, and, and it's awful, frankly. It is, it is humiliating and debilitating, and it makes the country a laughing stock. I mean what? instead of some of our more biased newspapers reporting the sort of uh, gross exaggerations they do, they should start reporting what's being said about us across the world in the more reputable world newspapers. Then they'd understand what's happening as a consequence of the... uh, ..the the, the trivia that is peddled every day in our
0: newspapers. Uh, Alastair Campbell was, was here about a month ago, and he was... Similarly exercised about Brexit, and as you know, is a vocal opponent about it. And you two are both involved in the People's Vote campaign. Um, do you think, at any point, and, and do you ever foresee an opportunity or a, a circumstance where the question is put again to the British people? And at what point would that be, and what do you think the result would be?
1: Well, the polls are now quite clear that a, a wafer-thin majority called Brexit is now ten points behind in public opinion. If I was 30 years younger, I would now be leading, or playing a part in leading. (laughs) (laughs) Careless phrase there, you see. I would be trying to lead. (laughs) a pro-European conservative movement. And I'm looking for the person to do it. There's a wide gap for someone who stands up and tells the truth about Britain's position in the world and how important it is that we take our place once again in the conference tables of Europe. It is appalling to me that after a thousand years in which we have been intricately interwoven with European history, there is now... A meeting of the leaders of Europe at conferences day by day by day. And who's missing? Britain is missing. So, uh, and and I would believe and I would argue, Brexit has been a disaster based on a pack of lies. The real issue, the real problem that this whole saga of today projects is that it is Boris's integrity that's at stake. Things that he has said or not said, what he's said to the House of Commons, what what he did in certain circumstances, it is all about his integrity. And those issues aren't aren't going away. They feature every day, and people are hungry for more, when we get the Sue Gray report or whatever we get, for more evidence on this integrity issue, but you can argue that the whole Partygate issue is not the greatest issue in British history, but Brexit is one of the great issues, and that is about the integrity of the Prime Minister. What he said about setting us free, about building a global Britain, So if it was true that he was wrong and untrustworthy on Partygate, what defense is there against those who say he used the same techniques to secure a wafer-thin majority on Brexit? And that needs to be exposed.
0: Some people might say... Well, look, we can't put the country through this again. And it, whether Brexit's right or wrong or good or bad, we've moved on. And we just need to, even Keir Stone, say, make a successful Brexit, make Brexit work, whatever three word slogan people try to come up with these days. <laughs> the political reality, if you were still in the middle of all this, the political reality, of course, is something you would have to deal with is you might be right, the public, it doesn't feel like, have a huge appetite to have another referendum anytime soon. So, how do you. Do you just have to keep going on it until they do? What's the the best way to turn public opinion in favour of having a referendum and then winning it on your side? The truth. You see,
1: I don't see myself in politics to say it's too late or it can't be done or the other guy won, so let's have a cosy time. When we nationalised great swathes of the British economy... My party didn't stand back and say, oh, well, you know, that's the way it is, people have decided. We changed it. We privatized them. We created a new enterprise economy. When the Labour Party, after the war, introduced confiscationary taxation, which destroyed great swathes of the entrepreneurial world and obliterated huge wealth, we didn't say, oh, this is the New Deal. This is the way it is, you know, the world has changed. We fought, we dug in, and we won. And where I stood shoulder to shoulder with Margaret Thatcher, indeed, (laughs) I think I privatised more of the British economy than any other minister in British history. (laughs) Because I believed it was the right thing to do. And the right thing to do was to take our place in the power structure of Europe. And I will not deny the younger generation their place in the corridors of European power because a pack of lies were told over Brexit.
0: So why don't you think some of our current leaders on left, right and centre of all our mainstream parties agree? Where, why aren't those voices more prominent? Why isn't the desire there?
1: Well, they must answer that question. I'm waiting for the person who has the guts to do something different. And that if will you t- come. That will come.
0: From the Tory party?
1: Yes, from the Tory party. Because the Tory party is the party of change. You know, the Labour Party has a beating heart and is good at spending money and causes it, spends the money in an often desirable and heartfelt but the Tory party is the one that changes. The European venture, Tory. whole privatisation, recreation of the wealth of our economy, Tory. Virtually every major regenerative process in this country since, in my lifetime, Tory. So, uh, there are lots of things you can say about the Tory party. But in the end, it understands the nature of power and it, knows, it's, it has been brilliant. There is no more successful Democratic Party in the history of democracy than the Tory party, because it understands that in the end, to win, you have to appeal to a majority, and you have to appeal to a majority that is largely to be found in the centre ground. They will find it again. And um,
0: let's say Boris Johnson leads the Tories into the next election. Would you vote for the Tory party?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a member of the House of Lords. I don't have a vote. <laughs> <laughs> but you... in, but in, fact, in fact, you know, you can... Uh, I'm not going to cop out. Um, the, 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 the fact is that after the election, last, in the last election, where the Tories had stood had been deselected and stood as Liberal Democrats, I went to speak for them. Because to me, the integrity of the person is more important than party loyalty.
0: <clears throat> I mean, obviously Brexit changed things. You know, There's been so much change in, in the last few years, but did it feel a little bit odd to be one of the icons of the Conservative Party campaigning for Lib Dems?
1: Well, I don't think you should be too carried away. You see, I stood in conservative constituencies with Lib Dem candidates against me virtually every time I won. And I always said to the electorate quite clearly, I said, look, you've got two liberals standing in this constituency, but I'm going to win.
0: LAUGHTER but you wouldn't have campaigned for any Labour candidates that were anti-Brexit?
1: I, I, I can't see how I could do that. I mean, I've merely, um, i merely... Uh, some of my best <laughs> friends are Labour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, 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 I just know this whole system doesn't work. You know, the, the, the people... My understanding of human beings is that freedom to express themselves, to be entrepreneurial, to be part of little battalions as opposed to huge groups. The diversity of human nature and human experience all tells me that the freedom of the capitalist system is a vital part of stimulating and growing an economy. And whilst I am very strongly of the view that you have to regulate that energy. I know that the energy that makes the capitalist system is just as valuable in the private sector. Uh, I'm sorry, in the public sector. The public sector is full of entrepreneurial people who do extraordinary things in medicine and in the uh, education world and universities. It's the same thing about the energy and initiative and personal drive of individualism. And you have to create a climate in which that is given the maximum opportunity. Um, and the Labour Party doesn't think like that.
0: <laughs> Not, uh, well, elements of it might, at times.
1: <laughs> well, the ones like Tony
0: Blair who are closet Tories, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what Jeremy Corbyn would say about Tony Blair. Well, so.
1: he's right. <laughs> <laughs> And that's, why, and that's why Tony Blair became prime minister, and he
0: didn't. <laughs> Is there anything else you agree with Jeremy Corbyn on? Do you know what? Is there anything else you agree with Jeremy Corbyn on? <clears throat> well,
1: he, 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 he really was a sort of bit of a nutcase, wasn't he? <laughs> That's your opinion, Michael.
0: <laughs>
1: I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> well, I, I never said that, did I, really? Oh, no. No, no, no. no, no you didn't hear that.
0: No. <laughs> no, no. But did. Do you still watch Prime Minister's Questions?
1: Prime Minister's Questions? Are we coming to the thing about um, Savile?
0: Uh, well, <laughs> we are now. <laughs> yeah, we are now. <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly, do, do you still watch... PMQs and things like that. Well, every day, every week, you must be joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what sort of sad guest? Uh... No. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, no, I don't. No, I don't. And but the, I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I did watch the, the big
0: one. Been quite a few recently.
1: Yes, uh, I've watched a couple.
0: <laughs> and uh, when he made that, when the Boris Johnson made that comment about Jimmy Savile, what did you think of that?
1: Well, I think he completely misjudged the the circumstance in... in, in, If I remember, I think I've got it right. He started by saying he was sorry, and and that was the right beginning. But then he turned it into a sort of party conference rant, part of which was the Savile allegation. But the thing that... uh, I had already lost sympathy with him over the party conference rant. Because it was, I mean, this was such a serious issue when large numbers of people, for totally understandable reasons, were very, very upset and indignant. And to try and turn it into a sort of, you know, things that people like me used to do at Blackpool (laughs) was was completely unacceptable. In the context of that came out several, which I thought was just, I mean, uh, well,
0: uh, (laughs) what everyone else has said, it was quite indefensible. And once he's in that position, is the best thing for him to do, just apologise and completely take it back? Because he seems to struggle doing that. He, I th- well, I think that
1: uh, he will have thought that he has to fight his way through. I mean, I can see that... I, 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 I mean, I'm not party to what he's thinking, but uh, it's pretty obvious to me that he needs time because the newspapers get bored, something else turns up. And it's quite interesting watching. You can see it happening down the line. He's been the, the extraordinary saga of Sue Gray, unbelievable, but you know he will know that's what happens, it just goes on and on. Um, and so uh, he, he now has this, must be a, almost a rule I, from what I observe, every day there's got to be a photo opportunity got to be seen somewhere in a health service or in a school or something like that Um, and uh, events dear boy keep unfolding as uh, the the, the newspapers get bored and all that Um,
0: so uh, uh, that's what it is that's the way it works. One of the things that he is trying to shift focus onto and was prior to uh, the the situation he's got himself into is this phrase leveling up now Mm. is that the same as the regeneration that you were pioneering when you were in government or is it something else
1: no it it, look I think there's a confusion over the words Um, and I think it is exactly the same as what I was talking about regeneration because in truth the idea that the whole country is going to be like Belgravia is ridiculous. There are always going to be different levels of prosperity. And, but what I think you... Uh, to me, it is creating a climate of when people feel that their place in the sun is being considered, that their opportunities are real, that there are no patent unfairnesses around the place and that uh, they're proud of their local opportunities, local circumstances, local communities. Uh, now, th- that's a very loosely gathered collection of words, but it is all about what I think people feel. They've got to be communities which people are proud to live in, want to live in, want to stay in, um, and that doesn't mean to say they're all at the same level as people living in Belgravia, because that's ridiculous. Um, so... Uh,
0: <laughs> one Belgravia <laughs> one, resident. <laughs> <laughs> one. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's encouraging to get one person out of a hundred to show you. <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, uh, but that, that's not what i uh, uh, What I'm talking about is, is that creating that atmosphere... And um, I think Boris is is culpable, although explicable in the COVID crisis, that it's taken two years to produce the white paper. Everybody knows what can be done because we have done it all. It's all been done. And they know all this because they've talked to everybody, they've read everything. I know all that because they've talked to me even. So they know what the agenda could be. Uh, And indeed, Neil O'Brien, who's one of the key figures, worked for George Osborne and David Cameron and Greg Clark when we were doing all these things. So they know what needs to be done. But actually, for two years, practically nothing was done. You can pretend COVID was a killer. It stopped it all. I don't believe that. I think it it all have been done at the same time. And I think the Brexit saga demanded that it was done because Brexit actually is much the same sort of thing. It is adjusting our economy and behaviour. Um, so Michael Gove takes over. And my own clear reading of it is that he's fought the battle that I fought. And all the things that need to be done, he's tried to do. And I couldn't get them through because the inertia within the system, the self-interest within the system... And I can tell you what the, 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 these ingredients are. First of all, the great baronies of power, transport, housing, education, the great departments, we all know the name, all want to cling on to their budgets. They want to decide in Whitehall how the money will be spent. The Treasury doesn't want to spend anything at all, quite understandably, (laughs) so they don't want to see um, anything liberated in terms of local devolution. The local councillors don't want to see a mayor more powerful than them. So they don't like the idea of directly elected mayors. Local members of parliament, they actually don't want to see more powerful figures than them in their locality. And so we've got now over 300 authorities where we need 60. The Redcliffe-Maud report was the last serious analysis in 1968 of how we should organize local government in, in relation to the central government. And we've moved a quarter of the way, two-thirds of the way there. Um, Michael Gove has done his best, and he's got some significant uh, announcements, but he has not got the authority, which I couldn't get because I couldn't overrule all of these great baronies of power within government. He hasn't been able to do it. So we're moving at the pace of of consent. And that is not the way to achieve the sort of dynamism that levelling up requires. And basically, it's not very profound. Every single advanced economy, of which I am aware, has local devolution with one elected person in charge called a mayor. That's the model. We've managed to get that in a handful of places. Michael Gove has added some more to it, if he can persuade them. But that will still leave a great part of the country which doesn't have
0: such a dynamic relationship. There's so many, uh, obviously, departments that you were the head of in your long career in parliament and in government. What is your proudest achievement? I mean, I often think... Obviously, I think people always think of you as regeneration. You think of London's Docklands and how much they've transformed and continue to transform. So much of that is, is your legacy, and it continues to be your legacy. Is, is that top of the list? No,
1: (laughs) it would be on the list. But in order to provide some example, you have to find something that was difficult to do. And there is no doubt in my mind at all that it is the speech I made to the Conservative Party conference in 1981 in October after spending those three weeks in Liverpool walking the streets after the riot. And I knew what I had to say. And I knew, or I feared, more realistically, that the party wouldn't want to hear it. So was I going to say it, or was I going to flannel my way through? And I knew I had to say it. So the speech came, the moment came, 20 minutes, and it was about... 12 minutes into the speech, it's going quite well. My party conference speech did tend to go quite well. <laughs> and then we got closer. And the night before, I had sat up with a big text like that. And I cut it down and down and down to lines. And we got there. They're black. They're British, they vote here. There are no reputable proposals by which they can be sent home, morally, politically, or realistically. And the party cheered me to the echo. And David Dimbleby said Michael Hisseltine picked up the Tory party, shook it, and put it down where he believed it should be. I had lived through the 60s. I had a small hotel, I had an employment agency. I knew what was happening. I was the first Tory to criticise Enoch Powell's infamous rivers of blood speech. And I came face to face with it in Liverpool. And I've never been more proud of the Tory party than on that occasion.
0: What do you think of those big conference speeches, when you're distilling these... Not just ideas, but these are social forces. And you're trying to find the right form of words. There are profound phrases like that that you use. There are also, in any conference speech, good lines. And everyone always remembers your one-legged army. (laughs) Thinking about the Labour party, left, left, left. These amazing jokes. (laughs) And they... Oh, you have to look it up on YouTube. The whole thing's fantastic. But do you... I mean, now, you would see these documentaries about Tony Blair, you know, Peter Mandelson's chucking in lines, Alistair Campbell's chucking in lines, Blair wrote a lot of his best work himself, obviously he was very talented. Um, But did... (laughs) With with lines like that, did anyone chuck them in for you, or is that all your own work? The uh, One-Legged Army
1: was all my own. (laughs) And um, it was was an incredible feeling, I mean, you know... (laughs) Because, I mean, I knew it was good, you know, uh, (laughs) because... (laughs) <laughs> but but uh, you know it, it just occurred to me one day as I was writing speech this 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 will work. And it, it, just as just as I sit here now it's quite cold and, and analytical, it will work. but the, the like the great jokes is when the audience see it before you use it, they, you they, they're onto it. How does that feel?: Oh, I mean, I (Laughter) It, 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 it is the most extraordinary feeling when, when you've got... When, when you've got 4,000 people out there, you know? 4,000 people who are absolutely gagging to go with you. And I got as far as uh, a one-legged army whatever it was, something away. Yeah, hopping away hopping away was it from the mess that they have created left left <laughs> and they spotted it left <laughs> left 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 and I felt uh, uh, it was woof like that so I said it again <laughs> <laughs> which which was um, and, and it was well, yeah okay but, but then you you asked the question I must answer it uh, the other one that I think had rather similar sort of <laughs> response was... Uh, do you remember Ed Balls? Oh, yes, it's not Brown. <laughs> that was, that was uh, Richard Ryder, who was the chief whip in uh, John's time. And he sent me this letter, said, Dear Michael, I think you are the only person who could get away with this. <laughs> and he, he set it out. And as I read it, I burst out laughing. <laughs> And I used it as it was in the letter, and uh, um, I mean I've now forgotten the actual. Thing. It but was
0: something about non-endogenous something growth. <laughs> That's right.
1: It was a definition of some non-da-da-da-da-da area of economic blah blah, blah 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 and it was complete. No one knew what the hell it meant. Prof. Post- Borden Brown meant anyway. Realtà. But but um, and I was able to to read well from what Richard had said it's not brown, it's... And they knew it, they'd got it, it's holes! <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that was a wonderful moment.
0: <laughs> Mark, we're almost at the end of the evening, but let's take a couple of audience questions. So if you could indicate clearly, and I, if you could have one-sentence questions, please, one-sentence answers, and I will repeat the question. I know it's a nightmare, but because I have the microphone for the podcast. So, uh, yes, right down the front here. So who in the Tory party is most likely to win the next general election and who in the Labour party? I don't know. But my if God. pushed? No, I,
1: no I, I, I take the simple view that my endorsement would kill off any candidate
0: overnight. OK, so who do you hate? I love them all. I love them all. Oh, oh, well, Labour, it wouldn't matter so much. So um, who, who do you think of the Labour lot is... A more credible prime ministerial candidate? Well, again, I, I, I mean, I have got a view,
1: but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Boring, isn't it? <laughs>
0: okay, um, let me word it another way.
1: It's <laughs> <Do you laughs> think think like Ke- Jeremy Paxman, goes <laughs> on and on and on, the same question. You won't
0: get a different answer. <laughs> you? Um, do you think Keir Starmer will win the next election? He might. Okay, the second of the question, I'll try and take... Yes, right at the back there. Uh, You spoke earlier about decency within the uh, leadership competition when you were in it. Uh, Has that decency been lost and can it be regained? You talked about decency in the leadership contest against John Major. Do you think that decency has been lost? And if so, can it be regained?
1: Oh, it can easily be regained. Uh, And I think yes. I think that there is now a, a, a profound cynicism about the integrity of um, the Prime Minister. And, I mean, it's not... I don't get any pleasure saying that. Just pick up any newspaper. Talk to anyone you want to talk to. That is the issue, the integrity of the Prime Minister. Uh, And that has got to
0: be dealt with. And do you speak to... I'm sure you still speak to friends in the Conservative Party, of various rank and experience. Do any of them believe him? (laughs) Well, I think... um, (laughs)
1: There's that, (laughs) Nandine (laughs) Doris.
0: What an amazing note to end on. Michael, this has been not only a really good laugh, but just a phenomenal evening in the presence and in the company of a a true political titan. I'm very grateful, I'm sure everyone is. Before we say thank you to Michael, uh, thank you all for coming. Please thank everyone here at the Duchess and at Avalon for making tonight possible. Thank you all. But my word, what a special, special night. I can't thank you enough, but at least let's try. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Heseltine. That flew by... Faster than any interview I've ever done. I couldn't believe it. I I surreptitiously have a little. Well, I have my mobile phone just on the arm of the of the chair, just so that I can check the time because I don't like running over, and I just want to know at what point you know I need to sort of wrap things up. I couldn't. I checked it, and we'd done about an hour. I just thought it felt like it'd been ten minutes. I was just completely hypnotised by him, and just what an amazing. You know what's absolutely, and, and this is just. I think everyone who was there felt it, and and I'm sure you listening felt it. But there is a, uh, there are moments where I just think, I can't believe I'm sat here opposite Michael Heseltine. And I don't mean that in a sense that it stops me from doing the job or from, you know, keeping my wits about me and thinking. But I'm 39 years old, and I grew up uh, in Nottingham, as I'm sure you know, um, around the time absolutely at the time that Michael Heseltine was a leading figure of the government. If you'd have told me back then one day you'd be sat in the West end interviewing this guy. I I would have been like, well, firstly, what's the West end? (laughs) What bizarre twists of fate are going to plonk me next to this, this, you know, this, this dominant political figure. And uh, it's just incredible. I love making this show so much. uh, And it it absolutely uh, is, is even more of a pleasure to make because of the, So many of you get in touch with me. I had so many messages after the Angela Rayner episode. And I make this purely out of the love of making it. And that so many of you enjoy it It is a real treat. But the privilege that people of the stature of Michael Hazeltine will come on this show and and just let me ask them anything. Never say in advance, oh, don't ask me about that. And uh, what a joy. So, I mean, I'm still (laughs) recording this the day after. Still just like, you sort of feel like you've been elsewhere. You know, in a weird way. Obviously, you, you really want to pick his brain about everything that's going on now, and that's such fun. Because how often do you sit and go, oh, I wonder what such an individual makes of what's going on today? And with Michael Heseltine, he is one of those people. He is your dinner party guest of choice. Um, but it, he has something else, which is... And Tessa Jowell had it. There's something slightly otherworldly about them. You do... It, it's beyond just politics. You're in the presence of someone who, who really thinks about this... And obviously a lot of people think about this very deeply, but he has a way of expressing it and uh, a sort of delivering a manner about himself that, that does, you, you feel like you've, it's total escapism as well as just the thrill there is that escapism that comes with going to the cinema or going to watch a play. And isn't it amazing that a politician can do that? So I will stop now. (laughs) I will go and have a lie down and reminisce about this wonderful evening. But thank you so much for downloading it. Uh, If you enjoy the show, obviously you can support the show by coming to see it live. Get tickets at matford.com. The next two guests, Edwina Curry. I mean, if you thought the Angela Rayner one was raucous, that's going to be off the charts. And, of course, two weeks after that, on the 7th of March, another political titan, Neil Kinnock, um, and some amazing guests to be announced. And don't forget the rescheduled Christmas party. Sadly, MP4 can't make it, but wrote Zenna Alan Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. We're going to do it at Christmas. It's going to have Christmas music and everything. So if you... <laughs> If you're missing Christmas and you fancy a, a seasonal pick-me-up <laughs> in the middle of April, the 11th of April, all your original tickets are valid. If you didn't get one, you can come to that. And more big guests set to be announced. You can buy your tickets in advance for future shows, all of them at slash live. Come and see me on tour as well. My new tour, Clans to the Left and Me Jokers to the Right, which... You know I, I, I simultaneously despair at the state of our politics at the moment but um in terms of uh, the government trying to promote my tour it, it, in a bizarre way they're, they're doing me a great service so i shall stop talking now thank you for downloading this please leave a five-star review and a written review to help other people find it and i'll see you soon Ta